Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, from EPAM Continuum. Here at EPAM Continuum, we're a little bit obsessed with the future and the role that we can play in shaping it as human-centered designers. A huge part of creating that future is something we call backcasting, in which we identify an ideal future state and use that as a North Star for our innovation navigation. And yes, we do adapt this North Star metaphor when we work with clients in the Southern Hemisphere. At any rate, this focus on what's yet to come is why we were thrilled to chat with Rita McGrath, one of the world's top experts on innovation and growth. Her newest book is called Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. And it, too, is about finding a way to look forward as a means of acting intelligently in the present. Rita is a sought-after speaker, one of the most regularly published authors in the Harvard Business Review, and is a longtime professor at Columbia Business School. She was kind enough to spend some time talking about her perspectives and her new book with EPAM Continuum's Toby Botorf, Senior Director, Head of Client Engagement. Here's where their conversation led. Talking today with Rita McGrath, the author of Seeing Around Corners and Discovery Driven Growth. Um, I was very eager to read Seeing Around Corners because it seems uh, super close to the work we do at EPAM Continuum uh, within projects and cutting across them. Uh, we have teams of people dedicated to uh, trying to do just that, look into the future and tell the difference between ripples that come and go really quickly uh, and uh, waves, which may be something that you can capitalize, and tides, which may represent permanent shifts. Um, I'm, I'm curious about a couple of things in, in that book. Uh, the first part of your book is about uh, training people to notice uh, and to pay attention to the snow melting at the edges, as you put it. Um, but first, you have to get people to care, which isn't always easy. Uh, can you talk about the, the biases, the avoidance of bad news um, and the focus on the core? Well, I think part of what makes it hard for people to see an inflection point coming, um, you know, it stems from a number of factors. Um, I think the first one is what's sometimes called attitudinal blindness. And by the definition, if you're paying attention to something here, you're much less likely to see something over there. So the fact that you're focused on getting what you need to do uh, in your core business done, and that that can be very demanding, you know, that, that, that it's perfectly understandable if you're not sort of scanning the environment all the time to see what is going on there. So I think it's what you're focusing on is sort of the first thing. I think the second thing is, by definition, an inflection point represents a major change. And it represents a change in your uh, business model, potentially. It represents a change in the metrics that you get measured by. And it could represent the kind of thing that makes what you do less valuable or less useful. Um, so, you know, we're seeing that playing across industries now as the digital revolution becomes sort of firmly embedded. And so, you know, there's almost the human lack of desire to self-obsolete yourself, right? Yeah. And then I think the third thing has to do with often the messengers for these weak signals are not in positions of power. You know, they're not sitting with the strategy team. They're, you know, they're some guy on the loading dock out there who says, gee, that's weird. That never happened before. But in most organizations, there's no way for that information to find its way to the people that are actually making strategic decisions. A lot of times the people that see an inflection point really early are not 
in the strategy group. You know, they're not part of the decision-making body. They could be isolated. They could be out at the periphery. They could be on a loading dock somewhere. And, you know, by the time that person's sort of aha moment of, gee, that's weird. I didn't notice that. Um, Why did that happen? That's different. By the time that little bit of insight makes its way through the corporation to get to where people can actually make a decision about it, you know, a lot of time has passed and you can find that it's very late. Yep. That certainly resonates with um, our experience. I, I think sometimes we get brought in on uh, engagements primarily because as outsiders, we don't carry the same kind of personal risks in seeing things that other people are studiously avoiding uh, because they might be career jeopardy to point them out. Um, I, I think one of the challenges we encounter is uh, kind of coaching executives uh to live with the discomfort of this uncertainty. Um, we don't know yet, but we know how to figure it out is one of the things we often say. Um, how have you seen, do you have any techniques for helping executives um, live without certainty? Because I think it's, it's, a, it's a stretch for a lot of them. It is. And I think this is something that's basically been my life's work, which is how do you plan intelligently for high uncertainty situations where you've got to make a lot more assumptions than than knowledge. Um, what I try to do is break those big, hairy uncertainties down into more digestible chunks. So you may not know the answer now, but we know that if we take the following step and it's going to cost us this much money and we're going to take so much time over it, here's the stuff we're going to learn. And that will be a step along our journey. And so it's getting them to realize that you don't have to know the whole journey before taking the next step. I think that's one huge thing. I think the second thing that makes it easier is a lot of people feel like, well, if it's uncertain, and I make an investment, you know, it's irreversible and I've made a commitment. And the other thing I really try to get people to remember is most of your decisions are reversible and not high risk. You know, I mean, there are always going to be a few that are and those require, you know, obviously careful deliberation. But most of the time, if you start something and you learn it's not a good idea or, or it wasn't what you were expecting, you can stop, you can reverse course, you can turn around. And so one of the things I really try to encourage leaders to think about is this notion of optionality, that just because you took a step does not commit you to taking all the possible next steps that might follow on that. Yeah. And, and you talk about placing multiple small bets. I think one mm-hmm. of the ways to get over attached to an idea is if it's your only one. Uh, exactly. So yeah, definitely um, sympathize with those with those thoughts. Um, well, and that's one of the core principles behind design thinking, right? yeah. which is that, you know, you don't want to just make one prototype, you want 20 or 30 or 50, um, because each one's going to teach you something different. And if you only have one, as I said, the tendency to get attached to it is very strong. Yep. Uh, we are squarely in the design thinking or uh, human-centered design camp. And, and one of the core skill sets there is, um, I'll just call it noticing, that leaving the building, um, reframing the arena from the customer's perspective, uh, seeing the business from the outside in. Um, and we do that at a very human scale. We'll spend uh, oftentimes a couple hours in somebody's home or if the issue is in a hospital or if we go shopping with them, we try to get as close to the real context as possible. Um, one of the things that I got a lot out of uh, in discovery-driven uh, growth was that same customer insight, but at a different level or scale. For us, it's individuals. And in your in your book, you talk a lot about understanding markets, even when they're not totally well understood. 
Um, how do you think about connecting insights from, you know, for us, it might be 25 people to some hypothesis about um, a market that might be emerging? Well, I think the first step is to understand what pocket of resources you're actually competing for. Um, and I think a lot of people skip that step. You know, I call that defining your competitive arena. Mm -hmm. And once you've sort of given that some thought, then you can look at what are what are the alternative ways that different providers can get customers the job they're in that arena to accomplish, accomplished, right? Um, and so then, you know, if you talk to 25 people, right, um, very often what you'll find is a common pattern of jobs to be done. Yeah. And then you can start to work backward into, well, what does that imply for what a market opportunity might be? And uh, this is something that uh, Clay Christensen, who unfortunately just recently passed away, um, spoke about a great deal, which is that, you know, it's more fruitful to think about hiring products and services mm -hmm. than it is to think about buying them. Um, because if you think about hiring them, then it really focuses your attention on what's the outcome that customer is trying to drive. And what, you know, what does that imply for what we need to do to serve them? The other thing Clay said a lot, which I think is very smart, is, you know, the biggest competitor most of us are ever going to face is non-consumption. You know, it's the it's the decision to do absolutely nothing, <laughs> you know, uh, and unless what you're selling is like mission critical or vital to life, you know, there's always people who are going to say, ah, you know, I can do without that. Yep. Uh, we often encounter situations where um, where somebody hasn't clearly understood the value to be provided to the customer. They they then wonder if we could help them with an engagement problem um, when it may actually be a relevance problem or a mm -hmm. quality or timing problem that mm -hmm. um, when we go out and talk to people, it is, it is amazing to me how often um, we'd relearn just uh, how complicated and overwhelming most people's lives are and how hard it is to earn the right to be at the heart of their lives, whether you're an insurance company or uh, you sell stuff. Um, the, the option to opt out is the consumers and you can't argue with them over that. You have to meet them on their terms. Yeah. Another idea that I think is really on its way out is this whole notion of a sales funnel. And, you know, this was kind of from the days of the gray, gray flannel suit. And the idea was, you know, leads would kind of come in at the top of the funnel and then you'd work them through your sales process and then sort of customers would drop out the bottom. But it was a very linear and non recursive um, model for how you interact with customers. Today, what we're finding is every interaction, even if it is selling a product, is really part of a much larger chain of experiences that customers are going through. And I think a lot of companies, even today, are remarkably unaware of what that chain of experiences looks like. Have you ever heard of um, our backcasting approach? No. Mm -mm. So... We, we look for, especially for um, white space innovation, something without a whole lot of precedent, um, we look to define the customer experience um, as a journey uh, pretty holistically uh, and without getting into a whole lot of um, story about feasibility. We just want to tell a compelling story that is simple enough for leaders to understand, um, that is drawn out of the truth of the people's lives that we've spent some time with. Um, and from that, we will... Um, backcast from that future vision to define an initial MVP or even before that some small bets to place. Um, and we'll place those bets um, 
based on understanding of the organization, sometimes the right first bet is de-risking. Um, so you address the trickiest part of the of the proposition. Sometimes it's about uh, capability building and confidence for companies that say, we're not very good at innovation. Um, go for some quick wins and start to socialize those stories and, and, and foster some self-belief. Uh, sometimes we think that the market opportunity is really great and customer value is the thing to prioritize first, um, potentially at a loss, uh, but just prove the, prove the market hypotheses first. The work that we do, uh, you might call scouting on your uh, opportunity portfolio map. Um, it's a way of mapping investments on two axes of uncertainty. And we're out there uh, understanding people, trying to resolve market uncertainty. So we're scouts. Um, how would you recommend a company think about uh, the distribution of bets? Um, there's, we're out in one corner of this map. Uh, there could be benefits to the learning if you cluster your bets carefully. There could be different kinds of benefits to having a very wide uh, scatter. How do you, what are your recommendations there? So um, what I try to encourage companies to think about is how your portfolio uh, aligns across four topics, if you will. And in my experience, very few organizations have uh, the level of alignment that they really ought to. So the first thing is your strategy. And, you know, unfortunately, strategy is one of those words that has come in organizations to mean anything important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have strategic human resources and strategic procurement and blah, blah, blah. And what I think about in terms of strategy is what are the choices you're making based on what logic about, you know, what customers to serve, where you're going to meet them, you know, what the offers are going to be and so forth based on a point of view about the future. So when you have a strategy, it pulls you forward, right? Um, so an interesting example is when Satya Nadella first articulated his vision for the strategy at Microsoft, it was really about going from selling products to empowering people to accomplish things. And it's a seemingly minor change, but it really changed the emphasis for the whole company from let's go into markets where we have dominant market share and, you know, monopolize those markets basically. And let's go out there and really be useful to customers wherever they are. And so it meant leaving behind a lot of what was then Microsoft orthodoxy around things like we don't play well with Linux and, mm -hmm. you know, you'll never find us on an Apple product and oh my goodness, you know, that kind of thing. So they're now cross-platform and so forth because they're being guided by a different thesis for how they want to be relevant in the world. Okay, so your strategy. Yep. The next set of things has to do with your budgets and your resource allocation. And this is, you know, what goes where in the portfolio is the outcome of some kind of resource allocation process. And this is where the first disconnect starts. Because what you'll find is people go off on these big strategy retreats, and it's such hard work, and it takes so much time. And then we get back, and it's like, oh, God, I don't want to have to redo the whole budget system, right? So this year's budget starts from last year's budget. And essentially, what you've got is a strategy that's sort of saying, here, the future we want to go for and a budgeting system that's very capably delivering whatever was in the past. Um, the third thing is your system of project approval and assessment. And here's another place where these disconnects open up. Um, we did a project for a large uh, food ingredients manufacturer. Um, 
And all this new CEO and all he wanted to find out was what's going on in my company that has to do with digital transformation. That's a simple question. So we scoured the company and uh, basically he said, look, anybody that wants budget for anything has to answer these questions. <laughs> so we did a portfolio map, scoured the company and found something like $15 million worth of spend that nobody in the C-suite was even aware of. Um, and so, you know, that kind of disconnect, like who decides what project on what criteria does it connect to the strategy? And then, of course, the last thing, which you'll be very familiar with, is how people perceive they're going to be incented. So to come back to answering your question, you need to have alignment between those four things. And once you have that, the portfolio you have will reflect your strategy. So if I were to take Microsoft, just to continue with the example, you know, for years, their strategy was really focused on launching things, right? I mean, was it good? Did customers like it? Did it fit? purpose? Was it compatible with other technologies? Much less important than did you ship it, <laughs> right? It was yeah. a real ship it culture. Um, and right now, Nadella's really changed that. He said, no, we really want to be looking at whether customers love our products because that's going to define usage and so forth. And so it's become a very different kind of portfolio. So back to your question about scouting. Um, if you think you have a lot of capabilities which have broad relevance to new kinds of customers or new kinds of markets, then you'd want to put more emphasis on scouting. If you're a company like, say, Corning, that you know we need to be 10 years ahead of our competition, you'll be spending a lot more energy in what I call the positioning space, which is where you kind of think there's a demand, but the technology to meet that demand isn't quite there yet. Yep. So uh, I, I loved your mention there, your defense of strategy. When I came across uh, in the book uh, that strategy basically boils down to clarity of purpose, um, mm -hmm. I circled it and underlined it because <laughs> um, we feel like purpose is a, is a necessary anchor for mm -hmm. scouting work because mm -hmm. technologically the barriers to doing pretty much anything are quite low these days, mm -hmm. lower than they've ever been. And the discovery that comes out of um, understanding people is, is equally broad in scope. And so mm -hmm. figuring out what you should do means saying no to a lot of things. And it's very hard to do that uh, without clarity of purpose. So thank you for defending strategy. Yeah. I mean, another thing yeah, I mean, I think another big and very interesting issue, given where we are in the evolution of digital technologies right now, is we've had such distortion in what is possible in meeting customer needs because of the craziness of the VC market. And I'd place it probably from 2010 on, I mean, just madness, right? So what's what's happening is you've got services which customers love, and I'll just pick on Uber just mm -hmm. as a point to case in point, but any of these sort of digitally intermediated um, services that, that use technology to basically turn real people into digital serfs, um, because they're not priced. You know, it's not the, the, yeah. the, the, the value of the labor is not priced into the offering. Um, we've had deep distortions in the customer markets. And one of the, the reason I raise it is that if you're subsidizing your customer and you're subsidizing the service provider, you're not getting the truth. And that's not sustainable. At least it, it's not sustainable um, in the long term. Now, it's, you know, 
not bad in the short term. And if you can get your money and go, well, I guess there's people that are motivated by that. But my point is just um, if you think about that triangle of where customer need meets willingness to pay meets feasibility, we've sort of been operating on a model where the feasibility question hasn't been asked, right? The will we make money doing this question has not been up front and center. And as a former entrepreneurship professor, that drives me nuts. <laughs> I, uh, I remember going to a breakfast um, uh, for some startups recently and hearing somebody talk about a um, consumer-funded new venture. And everybody in the room was baffled by what that meant. And all he meant was, my customers pay for what I provide to them. Um, <laughs> what an amazing source of revenue. <laughs> um, well, and I think the problem is that what, what ends up happening is you have this huge influx of VC money, which is destroying the structure of existing markets, um, but not replacing them with anything that's capable of creating the same kind of value. So if I were to just take the London taxi business, right? Yeah. I mean, for, for decades, you study the knowledge, you know, mm -hmm. for years to become a London taxi driver. And in exchange for that investment, you were able to earn kind of a middle class life. Um, you know, once you introduce a VC funded alternative that and then, you know, you've got GPS and everything now. So I'm not saying they're as good as a London cabbie, but for most of the places a tourist is going to want to go, they'll be able to get you there. Um, but yeah, now once you sort of wreck the structure of that market, when it all shakes out, where are we going to find ourselves? So, you know, those those assets can't hang around indefinitely waiting for the other shoe to drop. So I think we're at a very interesting moment with that. And so the, the distortion that the VC money puts into the market um, puts a lot of pressure on uh, established companies mm -hmm. because it's not it's not a level playing field uh, no, the other exactly. the other team is willing to lose uh, in the short term um, well and an interesting example of this is um, Dyson you know Dyson the famous yeah. entrepreneur um, put about I want to say it was two billion dollars of his own money into an electric car um, project and it started when the only competition that was serious was Tesla and now, you know, what we're seeing is a lot of these incumbent players, I think BMW's one and uh, maybe Volvo and others, they're all announcing electric car projects. But essentially, if you read what they're talking about, they're planning to price these things below cost, you know, as loss leaders. And Dyson said, look, you know, we're a, I mean, we're a big company, but it, we're not an infinitely big company. And if, if I'm going to be up against competition that isn't going to play by the same rules, then mm -hmm. this business has no future. And he ended up shutting it down. One of the things that uh, you say in your book uh, is that people should fall in love with the problem, um, mm -hmm. not a particular uh, solution. Mm -hmm. um, that's definitely in line with how we think. Um, we have a slightly different take on that, which is um, I prefer opportunity statements to problem statements because they are uh, problem statements for optimists. They include things that don't yet exist that might be wonderful, in addition to the things that, that do exist that are broken. Um, and, and you talk about opportunities um, in relation to the hype cycle. Um, things are mm -hmm. mispriced when everybody thinks it's going to solve all the world's problems. And then things are mispriced on the other side when everybody's become disillusioned. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about uh, Netflix's um, bad timing on uh, Quickster and their need to reverse course. Um, how does a company know um, whether something is, is right now? So I look for the maturity of the ecosystem um, and, you know, just because I can see a trend doesn't mean it's real yet. 
Um, so I went back and I looked and there are articles in journals like Fortune from 1995 talking about how the internet was going to completely transform commerce. And they were right, but they weren't right in the near term. Um, so if you think about 1995, right, how did we even get on the internet? Uh, well, it was dial-up modems and AOL sending CDs around the world, right? Um, we didn't have a way to pay for things. There wasn't a trusted set of intermediaries. Uh, we certainly back then had no concept that an advertising model would fund free, you know, free development of the internet for a lot of us. Well, free in quotes. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the ecosystem you would need to get those jobs done was very incomplete. Um, and I think the ripeness of an opportunity is going to be a function of whether you can actually get from beginning to end in the job, whether the right ecosystem is established to, to do that. And before it is established, it's a very risky thing. So if you look at things like autonomous cars or, you know, those kinds of technologies, I mean, yes, technologically, they've got trucks driving around autonomously. And, you know, there are some examples of places where autonomous minivans are bringing people around from the airport. But if you think about it, we, we don't have a regulatory regime. We don't have an insurance regime. We don't have a risk regime. We don't know who's responsible if something goes wrong, you know, is it the designer? Is it the owner of the asset? Is it the person operating the thing? And, 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 and. And so I would argue we're not going to get kind of mainstream Jetsons like no. <laughs> drone cars until a lot of that stuff gets cleaned up. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be watching it. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't, if it's important to the future of your business, be doing something with it. It just means I wouldn't bet the company as yet. Yeah. Um we have a way of describing that, which is um, that the, the the real pain point is in the, we call it, it's a very technical term, the scary zone between incremental change, which is easy to get on with, and cold fusion, which is fun to think about. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think um, some strategy conversations spend too much time in in the distant future, um, mm -hmm. it's it's safe. There's no there's no money. There's no reputation at risk, mm -hmm. and we, we're trying always to again backcast down into something uh, that is closer to real and therefore testable. So we can we can place some bets in the market. Mm -hmm. um, uh, later in your book. Um, uh, the book is largely about about leadership. Um, mm. It seems um, I was surprised at the at the turn in tone, uh, but also delighted. And for me, it it seemed to answer a question I had that I wanted to ask you, which was um, why this book now. Well, it's really the next extension of an arc that my work's been on for a long time. Um, so my previous book was called The End of Competitive Advantage. And essentially, that book argues that long-term sustainable advantage in many cases is just really hard to maintain. And what that means is you as a as an executive need to be attuned to the innovation process where new advantages come from, the exploitation process of the kind of business as usual, but also the erosion process where something changes and your advantage begins to fade. Um, and in the course of that work, 
uh, the question I would get a lot was, well, how do you know when? Like, you know, what do you do about the timing? Like, because, mm-hmm. I mean, if I go back to Uber, I was predicting Uber was going to be a disaster five years ago, and it's still out there, and people Losing are defending money. it. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but people are still defending it, and they're saying this business model is here to stay, and it's going to be saved by food delivery and who knows what. So, you know, for all I know, it'll still be here and with us for another five years. That really got me thinking about, well, how, how, what's the phenomenon, right? And that got me thinking about Andy Grove's seminal work in the 90s um, about the strategic inflection point he lived through at Intel. And what I was interested in that was different than his work was, well, how do you go back in time before you're in the midst of the inflection point? Because his book is largely about, you know, how you deal with it once it's upon you. And I was really interested as a strategist more in, well, what could you do even earlier in the process? And uh, the sort of crystallizing insight for the book came from a wonderful little article called, um, What If You Change the World? (laughs) No, When You Change the World and Nobody Notices. Mm. And the opening example in this article is about the invention of manned flight. So the Wright brothers flying around. And uh, this historian who wrote the blog went, went back and looked and front page of the New York Times the next day, nothing. Month later, nothing. Years later, nothing. It took something like three or four years before any major newspaper paid attention to this. And it took even longer before people really realized what the full implications were. And it took even longer for flight to disrupt the railroad business, the long haul trucking business, the, you know, many other businesses that would be fundamentally shaped um, by this new technology. And that got me thinking about, well, if you if you take that as the way of the world, that it takes a long time for these things to become manifest, it's a bit like the line in the old Hemingway book, you know, how did you go bankrupt? Well, gradually, and then suddenly. And that's the nature of inflection points. So the thesis for the book became, and this is just how it developed, right? The thesis for the book became, um, how could you get insight early enough so that you can take advantage of the opportunity because it doesn't happen all at once. So if you can move your horizon back early enough in time, uh, that gives you really the opportunity. So going back to your point about um, timing and the timing is right when the ecosystem is mature enough. Um, One of the things that got me um, very excited in reading this book was um, I believe that you've detected some inflection points in the workplace um, movements from away from a command and control certainty-based approach to one that um, is more curious than uh, than certain, uh, that welcomes diversity of perspectives. You talk a little bit in the book about um, the difference between wartime and peacetime leadership, between male and female models of leadership. I think that, that the workplace is changing in a way that uh, this way of anticipating markets um, requires. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Great. Um, so given that, uh, given that this work is uh, about working with incomplete information, innovation is always that, um, we have seen that uh, ideation is actually the easy part. People can mm-hmm. come up with ideas. Uh, understanding what's a good idea is, is rather more difficult. Um, but even harder is the... Uh, bet your job courage to see things through the organization and get them implemented. Um, how do you uh, how do you assess an organization or an individual leader's um, appetite for that, and how do you stimulate it? Well, I think 
you have to start with their incentives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people are not generally barking mad to do something that is not going to be recognized and rewarded. So um, I'll, I'll go back to Microsoft just as an example. What Nadella has done with his senior team is about half of their compensation comes from what he calls performance metrics. So that's sales, you know, revenue, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but the other half comes from what he calls power metrics, which are the forward-looking leading indicators. And, you know, if half of your comp is going to come from how well you're managing the future, you're going to be a lot more interested in managing the future. So I think it has to start there. Um, I also use something I call an innovation proficiency scale to measure qualities of the organization that lead it to be more or less proficient at innovation. And it's things like, um, you know, do we do we have good metrics? Uh, If I had an idea, do I know where I would go with it? Do we have clear and well understood screening criteria for ideas? Um, Do we have small pots of resources so that, uh, you know, if I did have something, I had a little bit of money to go try it out? Um, Is there a bit of slack in the system? You know, and, and those kinds of questions. And I think those are really the environmental context for, uh, just letting people know, yes, this is something we really want to do around here. You know, a lot of organizations are still at what I call innovation theater. So um, we do a lot of a lot of our consulting work ends up in this space, um, looking at uh, the the latent innovation capability and trying to grow that capability. Um, you say that most people are at the innovation theater stage of things. For folks that are farther along, um, I think the biggest steps are getting to. Uh, emergent proficiency. Um, I, I think there are a lot of companies who are very good at this second way of working, but don't necessarily have the alignment of innovation strategy with corporate strategy. Um, and how do ideas um, scale and then flow back into the regular business? Mm-hmm. Um, is that one of the main sticking points you think for folks? Sure. Sure, because, you know, if you think about it, you're trying to accomplish two different things here. So you've got your existing company, which was built, and if it's performing well at all, delivers a well-understood, repeatable, scalable business proposition to all your different stakeholders. And what this new thing is trying to do is come up with that, but a different one than the existing. So you've got two fundamentally different tasks that these two kinds of entities are trying to create. And so... On the one extreme, people all say, oh, well, you know, we can't do this in the context of the parent corporation. Let's just send these people off to Siberia and they'll innovate and they'll bring back something we can then scale. And usually that doesn't work because you don't have the connective tissue. And secondly, what people forget is the whole reason you want to innovate as an organization is because you're doing something that gives your startup an edge. If you're just a standalone startup – especially if you're encumbered with all the corporate governance nonsense, you're actually at a disadvantage relative to startups, um, you know, to, to startups that are sort of standalone. So I think there's there's the connection between the startup and the existing that's really important to forge. I think the second thing is to really understand what the interdependencies are, because usually the startup needs something from the parent, whether it's talent, assets, physical place, brand. And in the early stages, that can be risky. You know, your startup could do something that makes a mess of your brand. Um, and, and you want to be kind of alert to the fact people are going to be sensitive about that. So I think the best practice examples are, and it's a leadership challenge, right, where you're kind of knitting together the startup and the 
um, the, the parent organization in a process I call acceleration. The idea is, you know, your main business is like a eight-lane highway barreling along, and your startup's just poised on the on-ramp. And somehow you've got to bring that thing up to scale where it can be a legitimate card-carrying member of the parent corporation, and that's not easy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's the work we get up to and the work that you've been uh, helping executives get into as well. So, uh, Rita, we have to stop here. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, first of all, for the for the great writing, um, especially oh, your you. new book, uh, and for the time uh, we've just had talking about the future and, and peering around corners. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. EPAM Continuum integrates business, design, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks to Rita McGrath and Toby Bator for their great conversation today. Cheers to Kip Palalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire for getting this podcast recorded. Numerous appreciations to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all of his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host and Northern Star, Pete Chapin. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Mm-hmm.